Hello, my name is David Thorson. I'm a digital guide at Thomas Jefferson's home, Monticello. You're listening to a special podcast series called Sharing History, 100 Years of Telling American Stories at Monticello. I'm Ann Lucas, Senior Historian Emerita, and I'm here with my colleagues Lucy Middlefort and Gardner Halleck. Replicas of Monticello dot the American landscape, from a vineyard in Napa, California, to a bank in Monticello, Indiana. There's a house in Summers, Connecticut that is a full-scale, faithful exterior copy. There's a couple in eastern Washington state who've dedicated their lives to creating and living in their own version of Monticello. There's also Lego sets, pop culture references. There's, of course, a wonderful one on 29 South that you'll see as you go towards North Carolina in Almaro County. Even the town hall in The Simpsons is a replica of Monticello. So we find that the house on the back of the nickel is in the American imagination. It's familiar, it's iconic, and its meaning and emotional connection resonates with many people. But it wasn't always so. In the 1920s, when the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation was formed, the house and its owner-designer were not as connected to the American story. The challenge was to bring Monticello and Thomas Jefferson into the public eye and national narrative, while at the same time restoring and preserving every floorboard, window sash, door handle, and roof rafter, all the elements of Jefferson's architectural essay. This podcast will talk about some of the key chapters and main characters in the story of a century of preservation at Monticello. So I'm actually going to suggest that we start in 1914 so that we can understand the influence that a couple, Fisk and Marie Kimball, had on the restoration of Monticello. It's the Kimballs who really come to define how the public understand Jefferson's scientific approach to architecture and the decorative arts. And the Kimballs are the ones who set the bar for us today at Monticello. Kimball first visited Monticello when the property was owned by Jefferson Monroe Levy. He comes in 1914 to examine Monticello as part of his study of a newly uncovered bunch of drawings. And these architectural drawings are by Jefferson. The collection is discovered by Jefferson's great-great-grandson, Thomas Jefferson Coolidge Jr. And he acquires these and deposits them at the Massachusetts Historical Society. And they're conserving them when, unexpectedly, Coolidge dies at age 49. His widow hires Fisk Kimball, who's been working in architectural history, to publish those drawings as a tribute to her husband. The folio that results from that comes out in 1916, and it's called Thomas Jefferson Architect. Coolidge describes the drawings as having suffered from damp and from mice. And you can see that on the edges of the drawings. You can find these drawings at the Massachusetts Historical Society website. They've done an incredible job of scanning and making them available. So if you're interested, it's very rewarding to go look at the physical drawings and seeing the imperfections that Anne's describing. I do use the drawings that were rediscovered almost constantly for any restoration project. All the time. The fascinating thing about Kimball's work on the Jefferson architectural drawings, it not only 
recovered all this information on Monticello, but established Jefferson as an architect. Jefferson was well known in his lifetime as an expert on architecture, but that had completely been lost by the 1920s, lost to history. But it was recovered. It made Monticello more important and iconic because it was this expression of Jefferson. It was not, as was assumed at the time by many people, a work by another architect, Robert Mills. Kimball really is responsible for our understanding of Monticello as the important place that it is. It also contributes to the founding of the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation. Not only are we changing that myth that Jefferson couldn't possibly have designed both Monticello and the University of Virginia, but this is now the best memorial our country can possibly offer him is to restore the building that he himself designed. There are more than 400 drawings in that collection and 245 of them are for Monticello. They range from things like garden designs, surveys and plats, furniture, curtains, clocks, parquet floor, entablature, garden pavilions, a brew house, slave dwellings, and domes. This huge flood of discoveries, scholarship, and publishing is all happening while Monticello is still a private residence. As many quote-unquote patriotic groups are forming to argue for Monticello being owned by a public entity, Kimball is the guy people are turning to. He's the established authority. Kimball is starting to become anxious about the condition of the property. In March 1923, he authors this report in an American Institute of Architects journal, basically says this house is too much for a private citizen to maintain. He's been watching this since 1914. It's now 1923, and the house has gotten into worse and worse disrepair. I'll read a couple of lines from this report because it sets the scene for what the house looked like when the foundation acquires it. Kimball says the roofs of the terraces have been left without proper painting and are now fenced off with barbed wire. Various extraneous additions of modern date should be removed. And he says it's perfectly feasible to put the place back exactly in the form which it had in his lifetime. This is unprecedented. There's no other house in America that has this level of documentation. So this is the, the opportunity because we've got the drawings. It's really a matter of just weeks from the time that report's published to the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation being formed and purchasing the property. Kimball immediately sends the report off to the new president of the foundation and says, I've evaluated this. I'm raising my hand to help. They immediately take Kimball on and he becomes the chair of the Restoration Committee. The foundation starts off with very little money. So those early projects are like stabilize the roof, stabilize the dependencies. And then they start to lean on Civilian Conservation Corps to help clear the woods. And the Department of Agriculture's Bureau of Public Roads comes in to do the entrance road. 
For the early restorations, I think it's important to remember that the foundation was struggling to pay off the house, that they'd gone to debt to purchase the house. During the Depression, there was a year when the foundation almost had to go bankrupt, when there was just no one visiting and all of their funds had almost dried up. But fortunately, they recovered. And by 1938, they were able to take on these more major projects. Yeah, so we've got the North Dependencies in 38, and then that's followed rapidly by the West Lawn in 39 and the East Lawn in 40. And those are heavy Kimball-era work. One of the main stars of this era is our local architect, Milton Gregg, who becomes Kimball's trusted partner, along with R.E. Lee and the Vanieri's Tree Company, which relocates their firm from New York to Charlottesville because of their association with Monticello. The other ally I'll just throw out here is the Garden Club of Virginia, which helped to restore the East and the West lawns and similarly rely on the drawings that Kimball had published as part of that restoration effort. A landscape architect engineer named Morley Williams did a very close survey to document the topography of the West Lawn and was able to find where the Jefferson Paths had actually been. Later, local people came up at night, perhaps after a cocktail or two, and shine their headlights across the West Lawn to reveal these small changes in topography that showed where the Jefferson beds were and perhaps where the paths were. There's this really great statement by Garden Club member Hazelhurst Perkins, who was in charge of this. She says, we are not landscaping Monticello on our own, but carrying out Mr. Jefferson's plans in detail. It has no interest to me or value unless we work in the original plans. And I think the history of restoration at Monticello bears out this idea that Kimball's scientific approach stimulated enthusiasm on the part of other people who wanted to be part of this. Grigg starts doing a report in 46 that summarizes the threats to the structure from fire and the structural integrity, anything that's questionable. And then there's the big restoration in 1953 where Monticello is actually closed from November 15th until February 1954. Maybe the two of you can comment on what was done in that 53-54 restoration. That was when a lot of structural repairs were done inside the house. So removing a lot of floorboards to remove joists and replace them with steel. Those are really invasive projects, but ones that allow us to have many, many visitors go through the house every single day. The roof restoration was until 1955. They removed the levee period dormers, restored the terrace roof at the center and the dome. Yeah, Greg and Kimball found a lot of evidence when they started to restore the roof to bring it back. Not as accurate as they did in 1991, but they got the basic form of it down, which was remarkable. Starting in that 38 restoration of the North Wing, they really put a premium on using the physical evidence, the documentary evidence, evidence that they gathered at other historic sites like Bremo, which is in Fluvanna County, a, a plantation owned by a Jefferson friend, John Hartwell Cock, to try to bring it back as accurate as possible, including some very early archaeology that they did. Grigg, as well as Kimball, had learned some of these skills at their time in Colonial Williamsburg, a leading 
program to figure out how to do these restorations to make them as accurate as possible. They then transferred these skills to Monticello for the restorations here. It's interesting that you raised Colonial Williamsburg because also it's doing complete recreations of buildings. And it helped to distinguish Monticello because visitors wanted to know, is this real? That was a very common question. And I think Kimball prided himself and the early foundation restoration team prided themselves on the fact that the majority of the house was real. Yeah, not a recreation. One of the things we should touch on is that Kimball's reliance on the documentary record omitted a lot of impermanent and vernacular structures. It led to a skewed view of the Monticello mountaintop that was weighted toward what was represented in Jefferson's drawings and in his writings. Kimball was largely interested in classical high-style architecture. That was his passion. The opposite side of that coin are the buildings built by everyday people, built with materials at hand, with the plans that were in their heads often. If someone told you to build a house, you knew what they meant because it's the house that they had lived in, that their grandfather had lived in, and their great-grandfather had lived in. These more modest structures are often unrecorded in history. To find them, you have to go to the archaeological evidence where they once were, or to the rare examples that exist in places where they survive, often just by chance. So there was an omission of a portion of the landscape in Kimball's era until we saw the archaeology on Mulberry Row, for example, in the 70s. Mulberry Row was the main street of the enslaved community at Monticello during Jefferson's lifetime. It included dwellings, workshops, a nailery, a joinery. It was a bustling place and not really depicted physically for the first many decades of the Foundation's history. More recently, there have been reconstructions along Mulberry Road that do use documentary evidence and certainly use archaeological evidence, but we have delved into the realm of, of reconstruction ourselves. When necessary, so that we can understand Monticello and Jefferson's Tell time. a much more complete story. There was a mantra at Monticello that it, it is better to preserve than restore, and better to restore than to recreate. Recreations, reconstructions, were the last resort for many, many years. It's still that way. On Mulberry Row, there was no other choice than to reconstruct buildings. There's two buildings we did, which are the Hemmings Cabin, which is a slave cabin, as well as the Storehouse for Iron, which is a workshop. Visitors are having a hard time trying to visualize what Mulberry Row would have looked like. These reconstructions allow us to shortcut that process, and then our guides, who do an incredible job, can then fill those structures with the stories of the people who live there. It's a wonderful experience. But it's actually true that with reconstructions, you do have to be very, very careful. Use as much evidence as there is, and that includes going to comparable buildings elsewhere that were contemporary. Yeah, that's what we did for planning of these structures was to go to other sites and collect the pieces of evidence that we didn't have. From the document records, we knew how the logs were sawn. We knew what the roof was covered with, but we didn't know how the windows worked. We knew there were windows from the archaeological evidence. We knew the size from the archaeological evidence, but there were important details of framing as well as what the hinges look like that we recovered at other sites. We are standing on the shoulders of giants. There have been many people who have gone out and looked at vernacular resources from Jefferson's Time and recorded it that we also were able to use. And because we have this incredible documentary record from the descendants of Thomas Jefferson, we have a description of the interior of that 
slave cabin, which is one of, I think, two known descriptions. Doing the reconstruction enables us to actually represent that important interior that we might not otherwise have been able to do. At the close of Kimball's career, he and his wife die within months of each other in 1955. The restoration era that Kimball had led had succeeded in safeguarding the main house and the dependencies. That work allowed successive generations of Monticello staff to turn their attention to the restoration of landscape features like the thousand foot vegetable garden, the upper and lower grove, and the reconstruction of the garden pavilion. Those all happen under the leadership of James A. Baird Jr., who's Monticello's first resident curator and later resident director. Jim Baird was, by all accounts, a scholar's scholar. He befriended people like Edwin Betts, who edited Jefferson's farm book and garden book. So there's this flurry of documentary evidence work in Bear's era. He publishes the family letters. He starts to work on transcribing Jefferson's memorandum books or account books. Jefferson recorded in them every cent he spent, whether it's for a violin string, a shoestring, a human being, or a plant. They'll be referenced in the memorandum books. Cinder Stanton and Jim Baer together worked on those. They were soon joined by another clever person, Bill Beiswanger, an architect, and then Peter Hatch in the restoration of the landscape. And so you had this brain trust of people who were taking the next step with Jefferson's documentation and laying the groundwork for all the, the restoration projects that would follow. Bill Beiswanger was hired in 1969, and his first job was to make measured drawings of the furniture in Monticello in the event of a catastrophic disaster. The disaster that they gave as an example was a plane crashing into Monticello. This was done to reduce the insurance premium cost. The insurance was less expensive if you were merely replicating a priceless object, and you could only do that if you had the measure drawings. And the measure drawings were put in repositories across the country. Bill is one of the ones who got the Historic American Buildings Survey to come and document the entirety of the mountaintop, basically, by hand, which led to the amazing roof restoration in the early 1990s. That involved replicating the balustrade using about 50 original balusters. It involved replicating the tinned shingles. Jefferson would have had tinned iron, but we use tinned stainless steel. They were able to find examples of these shingles down in the woods from the 1950s restoration where they'd been dumped and recovered so we can exactly replicate Jefferson's roof. And are these the shingles that have signatures on them? Yeah. What Anna's referencing, UVA students would come up and put their names into Jefferson's roof. They'd crawl up onto the roof and then inscribe their initials or sometimes their names. We're not condoning um, this. We're not condoning it. Please don't do it. But that roof restoration really is just an, an example of the iterative nature of restoration here. You restore something and then new evidence comes to light and you restore it again. There's also the question of intent. There have been some pieces at Monticello that are restored based on what Jefferson intended. 
And that's not how we're doing things today. The example I think of is the Oculus, which we now have a, a four foot piece of glass, which was what Jefferson wanted for that spot, but never achieved because they broke. On yeah, their way that's here. right. We know for Jefferson's letters that he ordered four of these large four foot pieces of round glass from Boston Glassworks, and they came broken and that ultimately he had a multi-pane skylight cover. The heart of it really is to hew as closely as we can to the historic documentation, to the physical evidence that we find, do not to invent new features, to try to put it back as closely as we can to what was in Jefferson's time and preserve everything we can in the process. There's the columns on the West Front, which were restored in 2013 based on 2005 analysis by Susan Buck. Susan Buck is a marvelous conservator. She is a paint analyst. The columns are made of brick, but then they're covered by a kind of plaster type render that's made with sand and lime and had always been painted white or so we all thought. But Susan found through her analysis that there was a thick layer of soot in between the sand-based render and the first layer of paint. And since we know via documentation that these columns were installed in 1823, so just three years before Jefferson's death, we are able to determine that that first layer of paint went on after his death. That was another one that upset people. People always thought the columns should be white, but they're not anymore. Our mantra now is that the restoration is never finished. We're always going back, always looking for new information that will allow us to reinterpret the work that's been done in the past. One of the great examples of that is the North Wing restoration, where a year after Grigg and Fitzgimble had finished the North Wing and put back stables that were meticulously designed, a man named Edwin Betts had begun transcribing Jefferson's garden book. And in the book, there was a description of exactly how we wanted to lay out the North Wing, and it looked almost nothing like what Grigg and Kimball had actually reconstructed. But the recent reconstruction during the Mountaintop Project actually removed Grigg and Kimball's work and put back something that was based on the Jefferson documentation. They did extraordinary work, but it wasn't right, so we replaced it. The Mountaintop Project was one of the major restoration eras at Monticello, started in 2013 and extended to 2018, generously made possible by the philanthropy of David M. Rubenstein. Many scholars had assembled an immense archive of information of what the built landscape looked like on the mountaintop. So we we're able to restore the second and third stories of the house, the family rooms that visitors couldn't visit before. We were able to re-restore the North Wing and the South Wing. Bill Beiswanger commented to me in his oral history that he really respected Kimball and Greg because once they made a decision, they fully committed. And the example he gave was the Chinese railing on the terraces. And they're using examples from the University of Virginia pavilions. Gardner and Lucy, you've lived through a major moment in the terrace railings. You have to give us some insights <laughs> on that. So we have images from visitors to Monticello, including one that shows no Chinese rail on the terraces, but in fact, a dark colored paling fence. By contrast, we have absolutely zero evidence that the Chinese rail was ever installed on the terraces. So the decision was made to go back to what was actually there. 
which did anger some people. Yeah, I still have architects call me up that are very upset that we took that railing down. Yes. Even though they understand that it wasn't built in Jefferson's time, they still love it. And it's this idea of nostalgia and being able to return to a place that you treasured as a child. But the railing had deteriorated to the point where we needed to replace it. And so the restoration process starts where you go back to the archive to figure out what would have been there in Jefferson's time. Luckily, we had Jefferson's drawings from 1824, where he went through, I think, four iterations of different railings before he hit upon one that he liked, which used these vertical pales, much like a picket fence today, to enclose the terraces. We know from these 1826 images that he actually built a section of this on the South Terrace, but not on the rest of it. 1824 and Jefferson dies in 1826. So he's an older man. He just didn't have time to finish. But in his notes, there's calculations where he calculates the amount of materials he would need to install this railing around both of the terraces. So we know that that was his intention. And that's what we went back with. And we did that because we need a railing to keep people safe. It's probably about a 10 foot drop on the sides. And so not having a railing was not an option for us. And the second best option was to go back with a Jefferson design. The mountaintop project contained many, many projects in itself. We we're also able to build two reconstructions on Mulberry Row. We were able to restore two surviving Jefferson buildings, these stone buildings, the stable, as well as the textile workshop that had survived. And we were able to stabilize another ruin on Mulberry Road, the Jornery, as well as landscape restorations like the Kitchen Road. Mulberry Row sits right below the main house between the South Wing and the Vegetable Garden. Before, there was vegetation, there were stairs, there was a privet hedge that really separated it from the traditional view of Monticello, which is just the main house. But by restoring the landscape, we're able to join those two together again. So now that you see them as one composition rather than two separate spaces. I would say the mountaintop project repopulated the mountaintop. It introduced a cast of characters who had lived and worked here in a way that they were made invisible by the, the absence of some of these buildings and the way the landscape was shaped. It was very Jefferson-centric. It was as if he was existing in this space in solitude. There's a vibrancy and an inclusiveness now at Monticello that was absent, and that is largely because of this massive restoration that Gardner and Lucy helped to lead. One of the major projects was to remove the restrooms from the south wings so that we could restore these rooms. One of them was where Sally Hemings had lived and raised at least two of her children with Jefferson in that space. So incredibly meaningful and impactful restoration work was done. As someone who came to Monticello as a fourth grader, my experience on that tour is very different from the experience that we're presenting today. What would you say to someone who says, it's all done? We have a lot more to do. One of the biggest omissions is the cellars, really. The yeah. cellars have not been restored. And that, I think, would be a really important story to add. It's what I did my thesis on. So mm. I am all about the cellars. One side is a prep kitchen. It's as if we're showing half of the culinary part of Monticello. We are omitting one entire segment of it everything related to what you'd need to prep a dish before it goes up the stairs that are adjacent to the dining room. And the bell system is my personal mm. 
I have spent many hours looking for evidence of the bell system. It's there. It's fragmentary. We still need to find it. There are four rooms that are unrestored, but right now there's staff spaces on either side and parts of the physical plant that are needed to maintain and protect Monticello. But all of these uses can be relocated elsewhere. We can open these cellars up and restore them so we can educate the public. The foundation's mission is preservation and education. I think the restoration of the cellars really is the next major restoration project in the house. But there are a lot of other smaller things that also still need to be done, like the console brackets in the tea room have not been restored. The North Pavilion tympanum should be yellow, surprisingly. We've got the ceiling of the North Piazza that should actually be a traditional lime plaster instead of beadboard. So there are a lot of things that we're constantly working on. And I think that's the thing when people come to a place like Monticello, you can easily think this is static, this is done, and it's just not the case, especially at a place like this where we have such amazing documentation. Tomorrow, we could find a great new document that resets our expectations about any of the spaces at Monticello and would require us to go back. Or technology could advance and allow you to understand the wallpaper, for example, on one of the upper floor rooms. I do get calls from people who want little pieces of Monticello in their house. They want to know the right color. They want to know the size and shape of things. Yeah. Monticello is this icon of American history, American architecture. I think people want that piece of it in their house, the yellow from the dining room, in their dining room. No one knew how many people cared about the Wedgwood Blue dining room until you replaced it with the yellow. And there was a revolt. You're altering their memories, their fond recollections of their first visit. I remember as a child seeing the cannonball-like weights in the cellar, and I was probably like seven years old. But I will always remember what that looked like and how that felt. And so you see people bringing their children and their grandchildren back to the spots that they recall from their own childhood. And it's tough when those spots have changed. But it's a necessary process because what people are looking for is also an authentic experience when they come to Monticello. And so it is the job of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation to constantly improve the presentation of Monticello to get as accurate as possible to Jefferson's time. I really like to think that restoration is driven by the visitors, by the questions they bring to us, by their passion and their love for Monticello. At the heart, that's why we do this work. What should visitors come to Monticello to discover? They should be looking for information on Jefferson, on the people who lived here free and enslaved on the mountaintop. They should find these answers in the architecture if we're doing our job correctly. If we get it right, then what they see can inform their understanding of the late 18th, early 19th century in the United States, and they can start to see how that history impacts their history today. Lucy and Gardner, I can't thank you enough for joining me today and sharing your perspective. Oh, it's such a pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Anne.